You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. According to the 2020 census, the population of Americans aged 65 and older saw its largest ever 10-year numeric gain, an increase of 15.5 million people from 2010 to 2020. That group also had its fastest growth rate of any decade since the 1880s, largest ever percentage point increase relative to the rest of the population. If that trend is sounding familiar, you may have heard the term silver tsunami. The baby boom generation started turning 65 back in 2011. As a result, the demand for senior services has been steadily increasing. At the same time, there's a growing need for training and recruiting workers for senior living and other services for older adults. The national trade group Argentum, which works with companies that own and operate senior living communities, forecasts that by 2040 there will be 3 million job openings for senior living. A program that started at UW-Eau Claire is working to meet the need for workers in senior services. And you could join in at 800-642-1234. Is that you? Do you work or have you worked in some form of senior care or services? What led you into that line of work? What kind of training did you have? Did the pandemic impact your employment at all? And did you leave that line of work? And what questions do you have about getting into professional senior care of any kind? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Doug Olson is president and CEO of Vision Center, a nonprofit organization focused on leadership development for aging services. For more than two decades, he was with UW-Eau Claire's nationally recognized healthcare administration program and director of the Center for Health Administration and Aging Services Excellence. Doug, welcome to Central Time. Thank you, Rob. And Shayana Vanale is also with us. Shayana is currently pursuing a degree in healthcare administration at UW-Eau Claire while working as a caregiver in the memory care unit of a senior living community. She's a member of the Vision Center Advisory Council. Shay, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Doug, uh, take us back to the start of this healthcare administration program at UW-Eau Claire. What problem were you trying to solve? Well, the healthcare administration program at UW-Eau Claire has been around since 1976 and uh, was a very solid program, one of the few in the state for sure and in the country. We had uh, kind of a big shift around 2000. The godfather of the program, Gene Decker, did a great job running it for many years. But then we took it to a different level and we formed what you mentioned before, this thing called CHASE, the Center for Health Administration and Aging Services Excellence. And that program was really all about bridging providers and the university together to kind of work on really making it a solid program for students aspiring to be looking for a career in aging services leadership. And that's really been our focus. And then here we are in 2023, Doug. What are some of the biggest challenges in bringing people uh, into this line of work? Well, we actually uh, had done a lot of things at Eau Claire that we're kind of using to move forward with this new vision center. One of the things that we kind of really emphasized was the importance of that field experience administrative training program that allows people to go out after their time on the campus with solid curriculum and then moving to a place where they can learn the practice and the trade of leading organizations that are taking care of people's parents and grandparents. And that significant shift was we also mandated that it would be a paid experience so we could get the very best talent to do the work and learn the practice of senior living administration and do uh, exceptional things around providing the best quality and services possible for those individuals living or needing to live in a setting or requiring services, too, because the spectrum has changed a ton over the years, Rob. 
And Shay, let's bring you in. Uh, what made you want to study to prepare for a job in senior living and care? Honestly, it is not what I came into college <laughs> looking for. Mm. I was a bio pre-med major. And I feel like a lot of times in high school, you kind of get two options. If you want to be in healthcare and you want to help people, you can be a doctor or a nurse. So I was like, okay, I like kids. I'm going to be a pediatrician. And then by second semester, I was kind of feeling the weight of the student loans were not going away. And I still had eight to 12 more years of school before I could start paying those down. So I was sitting in my chemistry class the first week. And this kid next to me was like, I'm an HCAT. And I'm taking this class for fun. And I'm like, okay, well, I hate chemistry, so you're weird for taking this class for fun because that is not me. Um, But tell me more about HCAT. And so he told me a little bit more, and I loved the fact that they said it was a heart for caring and a head for business. So I went back to my dorm room, joined HCAT 101, and within two weeks I had switched my major and also joined the student org on campus and tracked Doug down and begged him to give me an internship. (laughs) HCAD Healthcare Administration. Uh, Shay, what is it? You're also doing some work as a caregiver now. Uh, What would you say to people who, you know, maybe that line of work isn't on their radar about what a, a fulfilling line of work it could be? I'd say just give it a shot. I definitely had the same fears as many people do have that senior living homes are kind of smelly and scary and dark. And just getting inside of them, whether it's visiting a family or a friend or even volunteering, whatever you can do to get inside and realize they aren't the stigma that follows them. Um, I think that really turns people's heads around and makes them double think about what senior living can offer them. We're talking about a program that came out of UW-Eau Claire that uh, tries to bring professionals into senior care to work in uh, various kinds of senior care facilities. Doug Olson is with us, president and CEO of Vision Center, and Shay Van Ale, who is going through the program at UW-Eau Claire, working in a center herself. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you worked in senior care yourself at any level? Love to hear your experiences, how you got into it, the challenges. Do you or your family member count on people doing these jobs? Are there enough of them out there? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Doug, we see a lot of lines of work saying, hey, we're not finding the staffing we need. We have a shortage of workers. Is that particularly true in 2023 for various kinds of senior care work right now? Yeah, that that trend in all industries right now is impacting senior living as much, if not more. I think COVID really amped up the uh, challenges in senior living, and I think there were many heroes that rose to the occasion. But it certainly has been one of those that we've really worked hard, not only through Eau Claire, but through the Vision Center, to start changing the narrative about these jobs really fulfill purpose, provide meaning, have a variety of uh, possibilities with them. Our particular focus, Rob, is all about finding good leaders because good leaders, stable leaders, talented leaders help that culture and that workforce tremendously. And that's one of the areas that we see when you talked about the number of people that are not going to be in with positions that are unfulfilled uh, we estimate probably 250,000 of those jobs are in the leadership roles. Uh, So it's one of those things that at the core of what we're trying to do is not just replicate, but try to expand the landscape of senior living leadership programs across the country. 
Shay, can you talk about the kind of things you're getting in your classes that are you hopefully preparing you to be a leader, maybe an administrator in senior care? So one of the great things about the UW-Eau Claire program is that during your final year that would be on campus, you are put into a long-term care facility where you are working as the assistant administrator. So for my senior year, that is what I'm doing now. Um, And some of the things that I've learned in classes don't compare to what you see in the facilities. You can learn about the statistics and the F tags and everything all day long, but until you're in the community talking with the residents, talking with the staff, feeling them for what they think needs to improve, the classes don't mean much once you can get that hands-on experience. We're talking about efforts to train people for work in professional senior care, a program started here in Wisconsin. Our guests are Shay Van Isle, who's currently pursuing a degree in healthcare administration at UW-Eau Claire and working as a caregiver in the memory care unit of a senior living community. And Doug Olson is with us, formerly director of UW-Eau Claire's Center for Health Administration and Aging Services Excellence, currently president and CEO of Vision Center, a nonprofit focused on leadership development for aging services, taking some lessons from Eau Claire and sharing them around the country. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions for our guests, either about studying to join the senior care field or addressing the workforce gap? Are you uh, one of the baby boomers who's uh, hoping people go into this line of work and provide some of the services you're looking for or maybe for a family member of yours? If you work in this industry, love to hear your perspective as well. Join in now at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're talking about efforts to train people for work in professional senior care and a program that started here in Wisconsin. Our guests are Shay Van Isle, currently pursuing a degree in healthcare administration at UW-Eau Claire, and Doug Olson, president and CEO of Vision Center. That's a nonprofit that works on these issues, bringing lessons from Wisconsin to the rest of the country. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Doug, can you talk about uh, the gaps you see out there in the kind of... uh, academic training, the kind of work you've done in Eau Claire and now around the country uh, that you're trying to fill here. Really focused around coordinating partnerships between providers and universities, providing uh, a new narrative about the field, and also providing resources. We started uh, this journey about five years ago with a sabbatical I did, bringing together all these stakeholders across the various sectors of the field. And once we got started with that What turned out to be a project turned into um, momentum and now is an initiative that is really focused around trying to bring universities to a place where they're graduating more more students that are either at an undergraduate, graduate, or even a mid-career from university programs. So we started working with about 20 universities. Uh, We moved that up to about 40, and now once we launched last fall, it's been about 60. And we're working with them in a variety of ways to help them accelerate the development and growth of these programs. These are not programs, like Shea said, you know, these are not programs that someone comes into a university always and is really 
It's not front and center like accounting or biology or chemistry or nursing. And so we've really tried to raise the bar around what we're doing with universities across the country. And we have done some things around assessing what early career paths people are looking for from a student perspective. We're doing some innovative stuff around field experiences. That is really what Shay talked about is the secret sauce of these mm -hmm. programs. That's really where the hands-on learning and problem solving and really understanding how you're working with people and for people really happen. I always get a kick out of Shay saying she's learned more in three months in her field <laughs> experience than she did on campus. But it's no, so, it's, no, no, no. <laughs> it's so critically important. And, you know, we've really worked hard. Uh, we do... Uh, Number, we do a symposium every year. We have webinars. We have other things that are really kind of advancing the field. And, you know, when you mentioned it grew out of Eau Claire, there's a lot of best practices that came from Eau Claire. But there's a lot of things we're learning as we work with other universities across the country. We're working with universities in the West, the Midwest, the East, the South. And uh, each of them come from different kind of perspectives. Some will come out of a hospitality school, some come out of a business school, some come out of a health science school. So collectively, we're kind of all learning together and we're making great progress. Let's bring uh, on a caller at 800-642-1234. Nancy is with us in Grafton. Nancy, hi. Well, hello. Uh, I just have to tell you that I had a very, very large family. I had a lot of children of my own, but I always had wanted to be a nurse. And, of course, then it was a little too late to go to college or school to be a nurse. But I could be a nursing assistant, and I went to tech school. And I was a nursing assistant at our county nursing home for a long, long time. And I'm telling you, I, I loved the people that I cared for. And, and the thing is, it, it reminded me of when my dad was in a nursing home up in uh, up north, uh, Anyhow, I went to see him one day, and the door was closed and knocked on the door, and the gal said, oh, you can't come in now. We're doing a dressing. I said, I'm coming in. I'm a nursing assistant. I've seen it all. I had not seen it all. My father was his, I could see his bones in his back because obviously they had not, transferred him or taken care of him and turned him and such things. And then uh, I called the state and I told them, and they, uh, they told me that they were only following doctor's orders. And I'm telling you, I never saw anything like that before. But even after I retired from, the, from our, our county nursing home here, uh, I took care of so many people. Mm. I was, you know, with them when they died in their homes. And, and Nancy, I, I got you. We don't have a lot of time left, but thanks for sharing your experience. Now, Shay, I'm hearing from Nancy uh, the value of, of caring if you're going into this line of work. And really, it sounds like uh, based on her experience with her dad, she wanted to put all of herself into the care she was giving to people. How important is that, uh, being willing to have that, uh, I guess, that emotional uh, vested interest in the work you're doing? It's huge. It's the long-term care industry is hard. It is not easy. It's not even fun some days. And it is something that if you do not have the passion for this field, you're not going to succeed. And that's why these paid internships are so big because it gives you the opportunity to see if this is what you want to do. 
before you jump in because the residents and the staff don't deserve someone who doesn't care. And that is something that my current preceptor is huge on is these grow-as-you-go programs where she wants the CNAs to become TMAs and RNs and LPNs and directors of nursing. She wants to encourage the passion with everyone and, and show them that they can be more than what they are today. If they have the passion, they can do anything in this field. Nancy, thanks for sharing your experience. We're talking about uh, an effort to bring more people into senior care at the highest levels and at all points. Doug Olson is with us, president and CEO of the group Vision Center, and Shay Van Isle is at UW-Eau Claire studying to do this. Still time for your calls at 800-642-1234. Doug, you and Shay have both uh, said something along the lines of, you know, nobody goes into college thinking they're going to go into this line of work. You know, I know some fields were reaching into high schools saying, hey, Put this on your radar as a potential career. Is that maybe a next step? Yeah, we are already. um, First of all, I want to, Nancy, I'm sorry about that one situation Mm -hmm. with your loved one. I also worked as a nursing assistant, and I would echo what Shay said. It takes passion. It's hard work. They're never paid enough uh, for what they do, and I think society really values. During COVID, we saw how much family members and community members valued how much those staff members really contributed to the quality of life for their person. You know, one of the things that we are doing, Rob, is we are reaching into high schools and colleges to get the perspective from these new emerging leaders so that we're really talking about the profession of senior living leadership in a way that kind of resonates with kind of away from the stigmas and the stereotypes of this is a this is a profession that every day you make a difference for a loved one or a staff member and uh, you have a tremendous impact. I often say to people that the real test of a country is, you know, how they treat those that are underserved or underprivileged or frail. I think that is really the moral compass that our country uh, really should be thinking about. And I think you mentioned before, I mean, that silver tsunami is right there at the front door. Uh, Many people would say, why did you start this, Doug? I would say we should have started it five years ago. Uh, One of the things that is clear across the country is that we are definitely needing to make sure that we have people because you talked about there will be more people over 80 by the year 2032 than that are under 18. Uh, This is one of those kind of demographics in our country that's maturing that is really going to have to pay attention to how we do what we do and we're going to have to do it differently, and that's why there's a lot of creative new solutions around how do we really take care of people's loved ones. And, Shay, uh, given the time of year right now, somebody might actually be in their car uh, getting ready to be dropped off on their campus for their freshman year. Talk directly to them, if you will, to put these careers in senior care on their radar, maybe if it's something they hadn't even thought of before. I think it's really just about keeping your eyes open. And one of my biggest things, I was terrified to change my major and terrified to look elsewhere because I had felt like I failed. And that was not the case. If it is, I failed upwards. So I'm okay with that. Um, But I would say just get involved. Take 101 classes that maybe aren't up your alley, but they could turn into something so much more be a part of the student organizations. You're not a nerd if you are. They are fun, and they help you make friends, and it helps you find where you're supposed to be, and you will find it, and you will fall in where you're supposed to be, and it is very rewarding once you get there. 
And Doug, let's speak directly to another audience uh, now. Maybe somebody's out there listening who works at or maybe even uh, runs some kind of senior care facility and they're not involved with Vision Center yet. Uh, speak to them and how they can get involved. Well, what I would tell them is that, one, they can contact me directly at dolson at org, And there's also the train has left the station. Uh, there's lots of room on the train yet. And if people want to get involved, uh, there's a variety of ways to do that, whether that's being involved and connecting with the university themselves, whether it means finding a placement for a student that wants to do an internship in this field. We really, really understand the value proposition of having someone new to the field with lots of different perspectives that really want to make a difference as a valuable asset for any senior living organization that is, whether it's assisted living, senior housing, skilled nursing, home and community-based services, there's a broad spectrum, and we're going to need all of them. And what I will also tell you know, the listeners is that it's also a very, very rewarding career that has uh, got a lot of growth opportunities, and it's one of those things that I don't think you will ever look back, just like Shay said earlier. We'll leave it there. Doug and Shay, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. I've been talking to Doug Olson, president and CEO of Vision Center, a nonprofit organization focused on leadership development for aging services, and Shay Van Isle, currently pursuing a degree in healthcare administration at UW-Eau Claire. We talked to them about, U- about Eau Claire's successful program, training the next generation of senior care professionals. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. Central Time, I'm Rob Ferrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Have you seen changes in the dress codes at your job? You're not alone. Many workplaces across industries, especially in office settings, have adopted relaxed policies and guidelines about what employees can wear to work. That includes, for a little while anyway, Congress. Recently, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer made a short-lived change to the U.S. Senate dress code to allow senators to wear pretty much whatever they want on the floor. Republicans in Congress and some Democrats criticized the move, saying the Senate should be a place of professionalism and decorum. Democratic Senator John Fetterman from Pennsylvania came under particular scrutiny for wearing basketball shorts and hoodies to Capitol Hill. Here's Chris Hayes interviewing Senator, uh, interviewing Senator Fetterman on MSNBC. Let me, let me start with the most important matter facing our country at this dire moment, which is the matter of the Senate dress code. Uh, which has recently been <laughs> recently been changed. Of course, of, of course, yes, yeah, no, of, of course. Um, I've heard about. I've heard that some people are upset about that, and, and you know, like I said, aren't there more important things we should be talking about rather than if if I dress like a slob? Days after the change, the Senate passed a bipartisan resolution reinstating business attire on the Senate floor. Our next guest is a fashion historian who says a recent tread toward casual wear at work isn't a reason to panic. Fashions come and go, but it does represent an interesting shift in our culture. You could join in at 800-642-1234. What is the dress code like where you work? Have standards loosened in recent years? Are you happy about a move to more casual and comfortable workwear in many settings? Or are there places where dressier professional clothes should make a comeback? And you work at a place where there's no choice. You wear the scrubs or the uniform or the safety gear. Are you glad you don't have to think 
about what to wear. Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Linda Prebyshevsky is an associate professor of history at the University of Notre Dame, author of The Lost Art of Dress. Linda, welcome to Central Time. Hi, thanks, Rob. Most of us don't work in the U.S. Senate, Linda, but when this story (laughs) broke, this is a a little while back, uh, do you think it was something worth uh, thinking about and paying some attention to? I was curious as to what the purpose was, um, because the Senate usually takes itself pretty darn seriously. (laughs) Um, And then I saw some pictures of Fetterman, and I thought, okay, I think I'm against uh, gym shorts in the Capitol. (laughs) Now, is this, and I've mentioned a couple times, it seems like more workplaces are getting a little more casual. Do you see that happening? And if so, why? Well, there was a shift um, towards what they used to call casual Friday um, in, I'm thinking, the late 90s, the early Mm -hmm. aughts. And the interesting thing was women actually found it annoying because they felt they now needed a third wardrobe right? Formal work wardrobe at home with kids, with family, informal wardrobe, and then something in between. Um, But now it's turned into sort of casual Friday all the time, casual every day. This is the thing, though, that I find interesting. It's also casual, even if you would like to dress up. Because there are places like Silicon Valley, where there are people who have quite frankly, enormous amounts of money. And yet they're not supposed to wear the beautifully tailored suit that they can afford, you know, because that's not what they're supposed to be wearing. Um, and, And I think there are different dress codes, but they might be just as annoying to some people um, as they, as they were before they got really casual. Now, there are written dress codes for some businesses, but there are also sort of unwritten rules that people don't necessarily come in knowing. Is that something you've watched for it? And how complicated can that make uh, things, especially for somebody who's new in the workforce? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, most of the people who kind of try to keep um, young people aware of what they need to think about, tell them you need to do, I I teach at college, right? So you have young people going into careers, into offices for the first time. And the usual rule is try to dress a little better than you think you're supposed to, if only so people don't think you're slacking off. Uh, And then you sort of look around and you realize, okay, what, what's, appropriate, what's considered appropriate in this particular setting. You know, more creative places, they expect you to be more creative in your dressing, whereas places usually like financial places, right, they expect you to be more conservative because nobody going into a bank or an investment firm really wants to feel nervous about somebody's uh, appearance. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Michael is with us in Kaukana. Michael, hi. Hey, how you doing? Um, I remember uh, when I started my career in the professional world, I was required to wear, you know, uh, decent dress slacks, a tie, a dress shirt, and a jacket of some kind. And now I see people in work and in church in T-shirts and in cut off jeans with holes in them, I'm going like, it's gone too far to the casual side. 
is how do we strike a balance between the two where people can be comfortable and yet be professional. Michael, thanks a lot for for bringing that up. And Linda, there is a lot of room between, you know, a jacket and tie and those cutoff jeans with holes in them. Yeah, no. And I've, I mean, obviously being female, I've never been forced to wear a tie against my will. Um, And I do know that there are a fair number of men who simply find uh, the way they fit around the neck to be uncomfortable. But I do think Mike is right that there is, there's got to be a happy medium um, where, let's put it this way. My rule is, unless you clean garages for a living, you should probably be aiming a little higher than that, simply in order to signal competence to people. And that's one of the things I always think about when I see college students going off to write the career fair on campus, is one of the reasons they've put on a suit of some kind or a jacket is that that has traditionally been in a way that you said, I'm a person who is competent and in charge of something, and I'm ready to work for you. Thanks for that call, Michael. We're talking about dress codes at work, uh, whether they exist, how they've changed. Are we getting more casual? Should we get less casual? Linda Prebyshevsky is with us, Associate Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. You can join in with your Thoughts, maybe what you see at your workplace at 800-642-1234. Linda, I, I am a guy. I don't love wearing ties. Large Adam's apple doesn't work well for me. But I don't I don't know that guys get a real pity party here. Uh, can you talk about the challenges facing women in trying to decide how to go along with the dress code? Uh, it's a little easier for guys in many settings. No, it is. It's true because, quite frankly, in the early 19th century, this is how far back it goes. This is, there's actually someone who wrote a book called Men in Black. The, the color options and the decorative options for men narrowed, right? So the color palette got much narrower, much darker, except for playwear. But for serious business wear, right, we got the dark suit. Women have always had a much broader, wider range of clothing available to them. And because culturally, right, fashion has pushed women to expose more flesh and form through their clothing, it's often put them in this awkward situation where they want to be taken seriously as someone working for a living uh, and not someone dating for a living. And yet a lot of the options for women are for dating, right? They're for the big night out. They're not for the office. Um, And it's funny because we really lost, i.e., here's my book, The Lost Art of Dress, (laughs) a whole set of amazing suit options, which existed in the 1950s for women. Where I'm talking, they didn't just look like men's blazers. I actually think women moved into men's blazers in the 70s because they'd forgotten all the amazing options in suits and in um, what they called um, dress with jacket looks. But there used to be a very large array of pretty much formal, pretty much covered up, and yet extremely attractive kind of suit options for women. And nowadays it's kind of, I have to say, sometimes it's sort of like every single woman is wearing those pair of black trousers. And you have to realize I love color, I'm a dressmaker, and there are many other options that are dark (laughs) and serious enough colors, but they're not what I call boring black. Let's go back to our callers now. Nancy is with us in Milwaukee. Nancy, hi. Hello. 
Um, I recently had um, eye surgery, plus many other visits at the Eye Institute here in Milwaukee, which is connected with Freighter Hospital. Everybody who examined me using very ultra-sophisticated pieces of instrumentation wore such sloppy clothes that I was very dismayed. Most of the people looked as if they had been brought off the street and given 20 minutes of instruction. And I think that this is because Hospitals now have the feeling that all patients get into a panic and get elevated blood pressure if they're treated by somebody wearing a white lab coat and very professional-looking clothing. And so they've gone overboard. And the people who treated me had uh, crumpled T-shirts, stained and dirty jeans, jeans with holes in the knees, just deplorable clothing. And I will never go back there again because in an effort to calm patients' nerves, they're they're allowing they're forcing people who probably would have preferred to have dressed more in a professional manner, but they're forcing them to come to work in overalls. I mean, Na- I gotcha, Nancy. I hope the recovery is going okay. By the way, Linda, uh, Nancy, not wild about see- seeing people uh, underdressed in that medical setting. Well, um, to me, the part that really uh, dismayed me the most was people who didn't look like they were clean in the medical center. I mean, one of the things that's really obvious if you look historically at nurses and doctors has always been, right, the original outfits were all white, right? And the idea was, man, those things look bleached. They looked really, really clean. They looked really, really hygienic. Um, And then we saw the move to scrubs, where everyone started wearing scrubs. Um, I'm presuming simply because they're more comfortable, but uh, I think I myself would agree that I do want people to at least look really clean if it's in any kind of medical care setting. Thanks a lot for that call, Nancy. We're talking to Linda Prebyshevsky, Associate Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. We're talking about the rise of casual clothing in the workplace, when it gets too casual, in your opinion, and what, if anything, it says about society. You could join in at 800-642-1234. What do you wear to work? If you could wave a wand and change your workplace's dress code, what changes would you make? Do you have no choice about what to wear to work? Because there's a uniform or a scrubs requirement or you name it. You glad you don't have to think about what to wear. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Right now we're picking up the conversation with fashion historian Linda Prebyshevsky about how a lot of workplaces, especially offices, are relaxing their dress codes. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. Did you ever have casual Friday at a workplace? Did you love it or dread it? What do you think? Do you have examples of where people you think are overdressed or underdressed when you encounter them at work? Join in at 800-642-1234. Back to your calls now. Dave is with us in Sturgeon Bay. Dave, hello. Yeah, hi. Uh, I was a teacher, and uh, the administrator we had was really big on if you're going to be a professional, you have to act professional. You should look professional. And it was really interesting. It did garner respect from the students. I think it made a difference. And it's, uh, if you can't walk in like a rag doll and expect to get respect from that. And it is a part of the whole picture. 
And I, I hate addressing. I, I, I'm a very casual, but it made a difference. And Dave, in this context, did did it mean you wore a suit up in front of the class or just like nice clothes, but short of a suit? Nice clothes, no jeans. Uh, many of the many of the males, they, the guys were wearing ties and things like that. I I had a non-traditional where it was a possible danger. I did not wear a tie, but I never wore jeans, and it was uh, it was it was good. I I hated it, but it worked. <laughs> I think it. I think they need. I, I think you need to garner respect, and you would look different from the students. You were not them. Uh, gotcha. Dave, thanks a lot. Linda, this idea that uh, as a teacher or in other settings, we are addressing uh, to set ourselves apart from the people we're encountering in our workday. Yeah, I mean, the when people in the past were taught how to dress, and they literally were taught how to dress, that's what my book is about. One of the things the um, dress advisors said is, look, when you're out in a public place and the workplace is one of those places it's not an intimate setting it's not where you reveal yourself to people so in some ways your clothing needs to be more formal because it's sending the message hi we're all here to do something in particular work um and the other thing i think of as a teacher is um there is an institutional power imbalance, right? And to me, sort of like not having students call me by my first name, um, the fact that I am not trying to dress like them either is part of it. Um, We're not on the same kind of level institutionally. I'm their professor. And um, clothing does send a message, as as Dave said in his call, um, and clearly his students got that message. Dave, thanks for the call. Jeff joins us now in Superior. Jeff, hello. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, my senior year at Notre Dame, I was a volu- I was a fireman. I uh, wasn't volunteer, was paid, but we didn't have a uniform. And I told them when I graduated, I wish Notre Dame Fire Department had a uniform. Well, years later as an alum, suddenly there's a corner in the bookstore where you could get all this Notre Dame Fire Department apparel. <laughs> and I was like, I wish I had that when I was, you know, doing the job because I always admired Star Trek. You know, they had a uniform. They were on duty. <laughs> and I always liked, uh, you know, the military uniform looks mm-hmm. looks really good. I think a person looks sharp when you have a uniform. Jeff, I'm sorry you didn't get royalties because that was your idea for that uniform. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, uniforms answer a lot of these questions, Linda, for, for better or worse. Right, they do. And they also send a message about being a member of something bigger than yourself, right? You're a member of a core. Um, It's funny because very often people will say, well, fashion's for women. Only women care about fashion. And I point out that actually military men feel very strongly about their uniforms. And sometimes it's just because they want their uniforms to function. Right. But if you've ever seen the Marines in their dress uniforms, you know, they also care about the style of it and and how good looking it is as well. Thanks for the call, Jeff, at 800-642-1234. Looking at changing dress codes at work. Linda Prebyshevsky stays with us, Associate Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. We'll go now to Matt in Waukesha. Matt, hi. Hello. I was something you hit on just a few moments ago. Uh, the idea of this workplace um, dress code, I think, is a part of a larger public versus private 
sort of space, which you kind of just mentioned. Um, you know, and and it probably comes from a good place of wanting to try to break down some barriers of what you know is a stereotype of who's dressing this way and what what spaces. But I think it also loses its function, like you said, of um, you know, kind of you know, yeah, like the uniform is a great example of that actually too. Like you know, who is you know this who is who is the firefighter who's a paramedic who is a policeman if everybody wears a jacket that says that on the back or mm-hmm. or or whatnot or whether it's teacher student or... matt i gotcha thanks a lot for the call and linda that blurring of public private well we had this period where many people in lines of work were working at home uh yes. and that may have how much did that change our, our thinking about clothing um i think it did because there were a whole lot of people who um did or did not dress. I actually dressed to Zoom classes. So (laughs) my position was nothing had really changed. Of course, I was trying to reassure, right, a group of undergraduates who was going through one of the most confusing times in their education. Um, But I was also thinking about uh, the fact that I do think there are people who got sick of the not dressing up at all. Um, I think there's a reason why once restaurants opened, people wanted to go out and be in them and they wanted to go out at night and they wanted to be able to celebrate. And usually when you actually celebrate some event, you want to wear something special to mark that occasion. So I think, I mean, and to me, the art of dress is actually the ability to dress for everything from, yes, I'm going to clean my garage today or walk my dog or do my gardening too. I am ready for a formal, beautiful event where I get to wear something that's special that I don't get to wear every day. Thanks for that call. Now, I think sometimes, Linda, when people talk about uh, things like uh, changing dress codes, there can be on the one hand a sense that, okay, society's in decline. Kids today, on the other hand, like uh, from the other end of the spectrum, come on, give it up. Things change, whatever. Uh, Where do you fall on that huge (laughs) spectrum? Well, I um, I kind of do what the dress advisors of old said, which was I look across all the fashion possibilities um, and I choose those that I think best suit my life um, and my body and my coloring. And um, I get to have that choice. Um, and one of the things, too, I think, especially I'm an older woman uh, now, um, is that I do actually prefer to have an emphasis on dignity rather than an emphasis on following the latest thing because I've seen a lot of the latest things coming and going. Um, and what was very fashionable in you know one year, five years later, was looked at as perfectly silly. So I'd like to pick what actually works for me out of all the possibilities. Um, and then enjoy it. Enjoy it as fashion and enjoy it as clothing. Linda, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Hey, you're welcome. It was fun to be here. That's Linda Prebyshevsky, uh, Associate Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. She joined us for a look at the recent trend toward more casual dress codes at many workplaces. Hey, one more comment. Frances and Milton uh, wanted to say she thinks big business casual could be nice slacks with a nice blouse for women, nice pullover sweater for men. Also, I have a note she would like to know what Rob is wearing. Well, like every day here, full tuxedo, top hat, tails, my little monocle. No, I am very casual. Radio is a very Rob-friendly profession. Intact, usually blue jeans. Black jeans today, though, 
mixing things up. And usual button-up shirt, but untucked. Because that's just how I roll. I kind of stumbled into that. So the height of... Am I a slob? I'm looking to Sarah here. No, I'm not a slob. But I'm not, you know, dressed in a suit on any given day. Or if I can avoid it, any day. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network.